Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. where we start with a random article, explore it, and then follow the links and see where it takes us. Um, John, why don't you start us off and tell us what your random article is. Okay, well, it's another one of our favorite things, Eric. It is a small town with a population of 139, so relatively large by Wikipedia Chronicle standards, <laughs> but it is a town by the name of Sisian Romunki. It is a village in Mina Brusden Duzi. What a doozy. Uh, within Plock County and in the Masovian Voivodeship in eastern central Poland. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's close to Warsaw. About 70 miles uh, northwest of it. <laughs> well, I can honestly say we will be going to my article. Because Hit luck, me. Hit I, me. I got extremely fortunate this time. Ah, yes. I'm liking this. I got the Black Album, Prince Album. Yes! Okay. The Black All right. Album by Prince. Yep. I actually like that album. I know this album. I'm actually not familiar with this one. Black Album, Prince Album. 16th studio album. And if you didn't catch it, it is by Prince. It was originally planned to be released on December 7th, 1987 as a follow-up to Sign of the Times. And it was to appear in an entirely black sleeve with no title or even a credit to Prince. Hence, it was referred to as the Black Album. But, um, then it was shelved and later released in 1994 instead. At one point, Prince had seemed to have fallen out with his African-American center audience, and this was supposed to be an attempt to get back in good with them. Mm. Um, basically, his means of doing that was to stop making pop music and deliberately make an album that is not so subtly catering towards uh, uh, the black community. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then also, in addition to that, make it entirely funk. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, at that point, I feel like the African-American community would be insulted the other direction. <laughs> like, okay, this is good, Prince, but you can tell <laughs> you're definitely putting it out in front just to try to, like, appear like you're fitting in. And I don't know if that's, like, respectable or not, mm. but... <laughs> the opening track actually mentions the title of the album as being The Funk Bible. But... Obviously, that... Was, did not end up being the um, 
actual name of the album. Because technically, there is no name of the album. No. In fact, it's so extremely without a name that uh, the first promo release only copies in 1987 had no printed title, had no artist name. They didn't have any production credits. They didn't have any <laughs> photography printed. A simple black sleeve was the only thing in there with the disc. <laughs> and on promotional copies, only one song listing and catalog number, 25677, were printed on the disc itself. That was it. That was the full extent of you knowing what there was on that disc. <laughs> so if you have a random disc that you receive that says 25677A, hang on to it. Probably pretty valuable. Yeah. And B, it's prints. So I guess when it came out, would people have like gone into the record store and seen this thing and just been like, hmm, I wonder what this is. I wonder who did this. Yes. Why is this here? I'm going to buy it and see what's up with this. I mean, it would be pretty mysterious. Yeah. Everything else is very clearly labeled, or at least has some semblance of, you know, a logo or something. Mm. Even Metallica's Black Album, they hold up to the light, you can kind of see. Right, yeah, they have that little guy. stuff, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, if you see something that's legit, completely <laughs> blank, and it's brand new and sealed, yeah. you're kind of like, all right, <laughs> I'll, I'll take a risk with this. But I guess they could have, the people working there could have put it in with the prints section right? if they were even aware of who it was. Well, it's a matter of time, right? Like, if they have a promo copy, it's mm. a promo copy. They can open it up and listen to it. That's true. So, and Prince, Prince sounds pretty much only like Prince. Yeah, he's pretty distinctive. Yeah. So, you listen to it one time, you're like... Oh, weird. Prince made this thing. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Prince album. <laughs> Surprise ruined. But I don't know how many people actually would have been able to do that. Yeah. And where would they even put it if they didn't? If they didn't know where it, it was. Yeah. Somebody had to like put it on a piece the wall of paper. or something. <laughs> no, I don't know. I mean, like, how would they receive it in a record store and then file it? You mean, like, how yeah, would like, they put what, it on the sales yeah, floor? Like, I mean, it, like, there would be alpha. no place to put it if you didn't right. know where to put it if there was no indication of who did it or anything I don't know what you would do they could just maybe have a shelf of like new releases and just be like alright we'll just put it up there maybe they had like a card that just said question mark on it <laughs> back in the day just in case an artist felt like doing this <laughs> and they could just put it in there and be like what here just miscellaneous whatever. yeah <laughs> so cool story uh the album was withdrawn a week before its release date, replaced with the album Love Sexy, <laughs> which is a brighter pop-oriented album with elements of religious affirmation, <laughs> and I suspect other things. <laughs> well, so that's pretty close to the release date to pull the album, and I mean, like, he would have had to record an entire other album for them to release. So that's pretty crazy. It is Prince we're talking about here. It's true. If you want to, <laughs> we can bounce over to the article for Prince just to find out how nuts and overproductive this guy is. <laughs> I guarantee you it's pretty nuts and pretty productive. Well, considering this is the 16th studio album... And it was ready to go in 1987. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd be willing to see what craziness he has 
going through here. You know what? Let's do it. While we're here, we might as well indulge. <laughs> oh, wow. He was actually born Prince Roger Nelson. His name really is Prince. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I like that about him. He never changed his name. Yeah. His name is actually Prince. He just Prince. shortened his name to <laughs> <Yeah>. one name. <laughs> He's widely regarded as the pioneer of Minneapolis sound. Hmm. I didn't know Minneapolis had one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's weird. Minneapolis sound. But, yeah, he was born in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wrote his first song at age seven. Not surprising. And after recording songs with his cousin's band, 94 East, the 19 then year old Prince recorded several unsuccessful demo tapes before releasing his debut album, For You, in 1978, under the guidance of manager Owen Husney. And then his next album, in 1979, just one year later, was called Prince, and it went platinum. <laughs> so he just like went from like zero to sixty, basically, in the music yep. industry. <laughs> Most of the, that, though, had to do with the fact that he had "Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad" and "I Want to Be Your Lover" on it. Hmm. Yep. If you have good singles, then people are gonna buy. Them. Then his next. It, it seems like he just put out an album every single year. Yep. Which is kind of how it was back in those days, as opposed to these modern bands who have a leisurely two to three year gap between albums. Yeah, but he was trying to make a name for himself, you know? He was yeah. getting established in an aggressive way, because back then, you could do that, because yeah. there wasn't any other way to do it. Yeah, his next three albums were Dirty Mind in 1980. Controversy in 1981 and 1989-1982-1989-1982-1989-1982-1989-1982-1989-1982-1989-1982-1989-1982-1989-1982-1989-1982-1989-1982-1989-1982-1989-1982-1989-1982-1989-1982-1989-1982-1989-1982-1989-1
and he began releasing new albums at somehow a faster pace to remove himself <laughs> from contractual <laughs> obligations to Warner Brothers. That's one way to do it. He released five records between 1994 and 1996. Oh. So, <laughs> there was one. There was one every like half of a year. <laughs> Uh, oh wait, wait, okay. Let's let's go back and um, try to place. Um, okay, so after Sign of the Times is when the Black Album would have come out. It was supposed to originally come out, and then right. it was right before his five record stretch that it actually came out. It was in the five record stretch. Actually. Oh, okay. It was yeah. like the beginning of the five record stretch. Right. Love Symbol album came out in 92. Then there was an album called Come. Um, then there was the Black album, when it mm. actually came out in 94. Then the Gold Experience in 95. Chaos and Disorder in 1996. And also Emancipation in 1996. Man, that must have been a great time to be been alive for Prince <laughs> fans. If you were a Prince fan, you were on. Oh, yeah. Just like every couple months, like, hey, new Prince album coming out. I really enjoy the fact that his last album that was on Warner Brothers, and he knew it was his last album. He just called it Emancipation. <laughs> like, like, screw you guys, I'm out of here. <laughs> Woo! Look at that cover art too. Just like he's so happy to be gone. <laughs> he's so happy. You get the feeling that he changed his name to an unpronounceable symbol just to anger him. <laughs> Wow. Apparently, Emancipation is also not only the 19th studio album by Prince, but uh, the first triple full-length original R&B studio album ever released. Wow. So not just a double album, a triple album. That doesn't happen often in R&B, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> this man is a professional. So I guess it was once he changed his stage name to the unpronounceable symbol that he started becoming, uh, that he started, ref I don't know if he referred to himself, but he was the artist formerly known as Prince, right? It was around that time that, yeah, everybody didn't really know what to do, so it was kind of like, uh, <laughs> well, we can't say your new name, so... so... That guy that used to be Prince. Yeah, basically. But then in 2000, he readopted the Prince name. <laughs> Since 2000, he has released 14 albums. What? <laughs> How does this keep happening? How do you not stop making albums, Prince? Is there like a count on here? Okay. 32 studio albums. That is a lot. So he's going to have another album drop this year. <laughs> uh, an album called Hit and Run. Um, and I gotta say, though, the, one of the more interesting things that I'm seeing here is his personal life section. Not to, not to creep on him. <laughs> but he has had quite the romantic history with women. And uh, including... Uh, having dated people like Madonna and uh, Kim Basinger, Carmen Electra, he is, you know, not necessarily the best husband. Though he's had a couple <laughs> of marriages and not really any relationships to note in the 2000s at all. Um, 
says that he became a member of Jehovah's Witnesses in 2001 following really? a two-year-long debate with friends and fellow Jehovah's Witnesses Larry Graham. <laughs> uh, he didn't consider it a conversion, but a realization. He said it's like Morpheus and Neo in the Matrix. Uh, I don't really know how he, he, he he's getting to there from, from that. I, I think he might still be a little confused about some stuff, but that's all right. You do you, Prince. Well, after two-year-long debate, which I can't see, I can't understand debating a Jehovah's Witness for two years. Right? Like, I know he's your friend and all, but like, why do you keep bringing this up? Like, move on or something. <laughs> Wow, that was an ill-timed religious transition for him. Uh, Prince has reportedly needed double hip replacement surgery since 2005, but he won't undergo the operation unless it's a bloodless surgery because Jehovah's Witnesses do not accept blood transfusions. <laughs> so the condition is rumored to have been aggravated by repeated onstage dancing in high-heeled boots. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> However, Prince was interviewed in 2010, and uh, he believes the rumors of Prince needing double hip surgery are unfounded as Prince appeared to be agile. Mm. Or he, he just cheated care. and he did it anyway. <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's a reclusive celebrity. He can do that kind of thing. He That's wants true. To. Nobody's like barging Prince's door now. <laughs> There's some celebrities where people are just like, you know what? You better just, you just stay there and we'll leave you alone. <laughs> You do your thing. <laughs> Prince is also a vegan, and uh, he has uh, featured a message in one of the album liners that he has released about the cruelty involved in wool production. Hmm. Didn't know there was cruelty involved in wool production. There's almost definitely cruelty involved in wool production. And finally, in the personal life, here's the kicker. Uh, he was apparently collaborating with Cinead O'Connor, um, and that he had summoned her to his house after the song Nothing Compares to You. Uh, O'Connor says that he, she made the song without him, that she'd never met him, and that he uh, asked her to come over to his house, and... Uh, didn't like her, told her basically that he didn't like saying her saying bad words in interviews, so she told him to F off, uh, and then they became physical, he got quite violent, and Sinead O'Connor had to escape at his house at 5 in the morning because he threw a larger punch than hers, which honestly, looking at Prince, like, I just don't see him being very intimidating. Yeah. He's not, like, he's not a huge dude, right? Am I wrong in this? Yeah. Like, let me go up here. Let me see if there's like a height thing. I feel like he's like five three. <laughs> oh, no, what, I did. What? They don't yeah. tell you how tall he is. Damn. <laughs> he does <laughs> have like a, uh, I don't know, like a presence though. You know, he does, but he's, he's five two. He's five two. I just yeah. googled it. He's five foot two. <laughs> But I mean, it, I don't know. I feel like those Dave Chappelle skits are not too far off. I feel like he can be intimidating in just the strangest of ways. So in 2007, Prince said he was going to sue YouTube and eBay because they 
quote unquote, are clearly able to filter porn and pedophile material. How do you know that, Prince? Appear to choose not to filter out the unauthorized music and film content, which is core to their business success. And somebody named Webb Sheriff, the international internet policing policy company he hired, told Reuters. The problem is that one can reduce it to zero, and then the next day there will be 100 or 500 or whatever. Professional. <laughs> wow. This got intense, though. On November 5th, 2007, several fan sites of Prince formed a Prince Fans United front to fight back against legal requests they claim Prince made to them to cease and desist all use of photographs, images, lyrics, album covers, and anything linked to Prince's likeness. <laughs> so Prince fans had to stand together against Prince. That's the kind of personality that punches Sinead O'Connor in the face. That's, that's it right there. So I guess um, Prince responded by way of song and they received a song called P-Funk providing a kind of unofficial answer to their movement and it originally debuted on their main site and then was retitled F-U-N-K and is available on iTunes there's also another incident in uh, 2008 when Prince covered the Radiohead song Creep and immediately after, he forced YouTube and other sites to remove the footage that fans had taken of the performance, despite Radiohead's demand for it to remain on the website. <laughs> yes! Go Radiohead! <laughs> then, days later, YouTube reinstated the videos while Radiohead claimed, It's our song, let people hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Prince put the video of that Coachella performance on his then official website. LotusFlow3er.com. It's always going to be some sort of weird numerical. <laughs> like, Prince is big on the lead speak. Yeah. In 2013, the Electronic Frontier Foundation granted to Prince the inaugural Raspberry Beret Lifetime Agreement <laughs> Award, a reference to resentment of parties who allege unfair treatment and misuse of copyright claims by the artist and his lawyers. That seems fitting. Yeah. So far, Prince seems like he's been one of the more stringent advocates mm-hmm. that we've had on the podcast. We've been through quite a few music artists <laughs> now, and this is the first one who hasn't, like, been cool with the internet. Yeah. It's kind of weird, though. Like, look at how many albums the guy releases in 2004, and then he does nothing between 2010 and 2014. Hmm. But then 2014 comes around. Okay, I have three ready to go. We'll release two this year, one next year. What? So on the tours, in 1990, he apparently did something called the Nude Tour. Which he did fully clothed. Okay. <laughs> there is a picture of it above. He's looking like a, almost like a Dracula costume type thing. Kind of. Because with that kind of a name for the tour... If you go up to, yeah, if you go up to the 1987-1991 solo again, Sign of the Times and Spiritual Rebirth Tour, or subheading, Mm. then scroll down a little bit, that's the nude tour. Where Prince looks like a white dude. (laughs) I don't know why. 
Yeah, kinda. I don't know if he's like trying that. But yeah, very pale. Very pale there, Prince. Yeah. <laughs> and so he when um Tim Burton asked him to record several songs for Batman in 1989. Prince went into the studio and produced an entire nine-track album, and that was released on June 20th, 1989, and it peaked at number one on the Billboard 200. That's kind of weird, the Batman album. (laughs) Leave it to Prince. Yeah. Uh, okay, I get why it's called the Nude Tour now. Um, says he went back on tour with a revamped band for his stripped-down Back to Basics Nude Tour. Oh, okay. So, it's kind of like cutting it back a little bit, making it more simple. Returning to his roots. Has a pretty sweet yellow guitar over there. Ah, yes, the yellow cloud guitar. Now located in the Smithsonian Castle. <laughs> wow, there's so many, so many albums, I don't know what to do. Wow, okay. So Prince really just has a bunch of legal troubles all the time with everything. <laughs> with regard to his stage names, in 1993, during negotiations regarding the release of the Gold Experience, a legal battle ensued between Warner Brothers and Prince, of course, over the artistic and financial control of his musical output. During the lawsuit, he appeared in public with the word slave written on his cheek. <laughs> Prince explained his name change as follows. The first step I have taken toward the ultimate goal of emancipation from the chains that bind me to Warner Brothers was, a, was to change my name from Prince to the love symbol... Prince is the name that my mother gave me at birth. Warner Brothers took the name, trademarked it, and used it as the main marketing tool to promote all the music that I wrote. The company owns the name Prince and all related music marketed under Prince. I became merely a pawn to produce more money for Warner Brothers. I was born Prince and did not want to adopt another conventional name. The only acceptable replacement for my name and my identity was the love symbol a symbol with no pronunciation that is a representation of me and what my music is about. The symbol is present in my work over the years. It is a concept that has evolved from my frustration. It is who I am. It is my name. (laughs) Which, it sounds silly, but honestly, for being a really silly thing, it was pretty darn logical how he explained that. I have to give him credit where credit's due. I'm not even mad. Yeah. And he's not wrong. His music yeah. does sound a lot like a female and a male symbol just kind of met up and we're like, let's get freaky with that weird, like, curly thing over there. <laughs> and that's, that's 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 his music. That's his discography. Sure. I don't disagree with that. Yeah. He's used a couple of different pseudonyms over the years. One, um, Jamie Starr and the Star Company. And Joey Coco. Paisley Park. Alexander Nevermind and Christopher. Christopher's my favorite. <laughs> that one's good. It's funny though because the guy uses pseudonyms to cover up the fact that he doesn't just write set like 16 albums every decade for himself. 
He's also writing albums for everybody else, too. <laughs> That's why he's using the pseudonyms, because he literally says he uses pseudonyms because he was getting tired of seeing his name. <laughs> he was literally just getting tired of seeing his name. There's a link to almost every one of his tours. Mm. That's something I don't see for every musical artist. Yeah. But apparently every one of his tours were relevant enough that they were worth like having their own Wikipedia article for. It's kind of funny to me that he is releasing an album this year called Hit and Run, mm. but the Hit and Run tour was in 2001. <laughs> like, what happened between the f- those 14 years and that, like, now, <laughs> that you didn't finish the album? Like, what happened? <laughs> Maybe he just has albums sitting around. He's like, yeah, I'll release this one now. He probably does. <laughs> he probably makes, like, an album a day secretly, and this yeah. is like, eh... <laughs> When I really feel like starting to, you know, crank these things out, I'll do it. But... <laughs> Man, I'm going to go home and listen to Prince, like, all night now. <laughs> I'm just going to go home and put on, like, Bluetooth to the sound system, 5.1 surround it. It's not even meant for that, but I don't care. Boy, I really hope I actually like Prince as much as I remember. <laughs> okay. So from here. Yeah. Let's get, let's get off of Prince. Somehow. <laughs> I don't know though, like there's so much Prince that Prince made in this article about Prince that I don't know if we can get his fingerprints off of it. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be funny if we just went to one article. We started out with the black album by Prince to Prince. <laughs> like that would be the whole that's this whole episode is just two just two this time out. Sorry everyone. <laughs> Prince has done a lot of stuff. We really don't have any option. <laughs> I feel like there's something I saw that sounded interesting to go to. But it's just so much in here. There's so many links. So many links. Ooh, we could go to Minneapolis Sound and see what that's supposed to be. I'm kind of curious. Honestly, why not? Yeah. In before, it's just Prince. <laughs> he created Minneapolis Sound, and he's the only one as Minneapolis Sound. Well, maybe not, but I do have to say I recognize literally none of the other artists here. Except for one, I do remember the time. And the only reason I remember the time is because Prince was in that band. <laughs> Hmm. All right, well, okay, so Minneapolis Sound is a mixture of funk, rock, pop, synth pop, and new wave. And it was pioneered by Prince, and its popularity was given a boost through the 1980s um, with bands including The Time, as previously mentioned, and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis which sounds awesome, and Morris Day, Vanity Six, Apollonia Six, Tamara and the Scene, Sheila E., Jesse Johnson, Brown Mark, Maserati, and The Family. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it says that identifying characteristics are as follows. Synthesizers generally replace the horns and were used uh, 
more as accent than as fill or background. The rhythm was often faster and less syncopated than traditional funk, owed much to new wave. Guitars, while usually, but not always, played clean for rhythm parts, were frequently much louder and more aggressively processed during solos, mm. and the bottom of the sound was less bass-heavy than traditional funk. Uh, the drums were also more highly processed than in traditional funk, so basically you have a more electrified, but also still clean kind of, like focusing on clean-sounding guitars, but yeah. more more trebly, thus bassy. Than, than funk was. Funk didn't have funk had that well-rounded sound because it had that really nice bass floor to it. The Minneapolis sound is sharper yeah. by way of having more synthesizers, more guitar emphasis. Oh, there's more there's more uh, artists down here that fall into this. Well, I recognize Sheena Easton. That's about the only one that I recognize. Hmm. Oh, there's the Revolution, of course, too. Well, yeah. But hardly counts because they're just <laughs> prints. It's just more prints. Oh, let's check out Sheena Easton. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to check out Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. I do actually want to check out Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Never mind. We're doing Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. There they are. Jimmy Jam on the left. Terry Lou on the right. <laughs> Alright, so Jimmy Jam is James Samuel Jimmy Jam Harris the Third and Terry Lewis is Terry Stephen Lewis. Oh, okay. They have enjoyed great success since the oh, okay. They are a record production team. So I guess they don't actually play music? They just produce. Well, no, they do. They do um, play music, but I guess they maybe they just moved into the realm of just producing. Maybe they weren't successful as a band, and they figured they'd just produce stuff instead. But they did have a lot of success um, in the '80s with various artists, such as Janet Jackson. Ooh, and as Faye would have it, Prince. Ah, yes. <laughs> so Jimmy Jam is the son of Cornbread Harris. <laughs> he was a Minneapolis blues and jazz musician. <laughs> well, with a name like that, I don't really know what I expected him to be. <laughs> Here we go. Some songs produced by the duo. They've worked with a lot of artists that I recognize, actually, mm -hmm. and even very recent ones, like Usher. They've worked with Usher. Yeah. You remind me of a girl that I once knew, for example, was them. <laughs> Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Yeah, I recognize the artists, but I don't really recognize many of these songs. That's fine. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> well, they were all um, Billboard Hot 100 number one, so... At one point... Most people knew them. <laughs> at the time. In, yeah. the, in the early 80s. 
they're really like not a lot of those are going to be from from when we were listening to the radio to begin with. They have won five Grammy Awards. Most recently in 2008, they won Best R&B Album for their album Funk This. <laughs> oh, okay, so they actually reunited with the time ah. at the 50th Grammy Awards in 2008 and the um, medley that they did included uh, the artist Rihanna and yeah well, that's pretty cool <laughs> they also worked <laughs> on Ruben Studdard's album oh, Love God. Is in <laughs> as well as Johnny Gill's 2011 album Still Good Didn't know Ruben Studdard was still doing stuff Neither did I You know who I also didn't notice was still doing stuff but I'm actually rather excited that they are Earth, Wind, and Fire Are they still doing stuff? They are, or at least they were in 2005 whenever Jimmy Ham and Terry Gillis helped out 2005 album Illumination. Hmm. Er, sorry, no, 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 no. Wait, no, that's right. Never mind the no, no, no. <laughs> never mind the mean never minding. <laughs> and I've worked with Barry White, Blue Cantrell, Chaka Khan, Shaggy. Wow. They have quite the repertoire going on here. Mm-hmm. I've worked with Color Me Bad. Boys to Men, Vanessa Williams, Tony Braxton, Rod Stewart. Wait, what? <laughs> that one sticks out a little bit. That may be the odd man out. Yeah. Patty LaBelle. Mm, okay, well. It'll get weirder, <laughs> I guess. A band, a band called Climax. Spelled K L Y M A X X. Okay. <laughs> Not sure what they're going for there. I worked with Mary J. Blige. I'm really curious about what work they did with Shaggy. <laughs> you do, why wouldn't this article mention it wasn't me? If it was, it was me. <laughs> they worked with Kanye West. Hmm. They've worked with Jessica Simpson. That, that also is odd. <laughs> because Jessica Simpson's the one that never really had, like, a very, very pop phase. Yeah. She just kind of, she stayed, like, Ashley Simpson, younger one, mm-hmm. she went a little off the rails during that whole SNL lip-syncing yeah. <laughs> gambit. But, uh, yeah, I recall, I just think I recall Jessica Simpson being, like, the goody two-shoes of that, of that group of yeah. female singers. Just kind of got famous, got married, and that was it. She was done. <laughs> he also worked with. They also worked with uh, Michael Jackson. Now that is impressive. <laughs> uh, the song "The Right Thing to Do" by Carly Simon and Megan Mullally. What? <laughs> Megan Mullally? Like Megan Mullally? Dick Offerman's wife? That one and the same. By the way, I am looking at their... I have bounced over to their 
list of songs produced by him. Oh, thank I'm you. Just, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just, you know, I was just curious. And... No, it was it was a good move on your part because now we have a reason to go to Bang Malawi. Uh, that's true. We do. All right, let's just let's just officially jump over here. Okay, we've officially jumped over. Ding noise. <laughs> Ding. Okay, I mean, you can say it. Are you well, edit that well out? yeah, I'll, I'll edit it. You can just well, put, maybe I'll. Maybe just say ding at the same time you actually put ding in. Right, yeah. There you go. I could do that. Yeah, it'll sound cool. You can double ding. Yeah. Double ding or humdinger. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of artists here, a lot of songs. It's kind of a lot to take in. Yeah, there, there's so many people they've worked with over the years <laughs> that. Yeah, I, I really just I need to... I almost wish it was arranged by artist. And not and by song title. Yeah, because when I'm looking at song titles, I'm just like, uh, I don't know what I'm looking for. I don't know what I recognize. But then I see the names of the people on the side, and that's what I care about. So I wish it was grouped by the artist so that I could find... Okay, yeah, this is an artist yeah. I know, and then I look through all their songs, and then I can see which songs I recognize. I feel like it could be easy enough for Wikipedia to kind of like cross cross mm. over those kinds of data sets, you know? Yeah. I wonder if we could edit this page to make it more of like a table, and then you could like be able to sort the table or something. It should be easy enough to do. It's just like an Excel thing. You can just yeah. sort it by this, that, or the other. Oh, well. Anyway, Megan Mullally? Let's go Megan Mullally. Other ding noise. <laughs> All right, born in 1958. Wow, she is <laughs> older than I thought she was. Okay. Yeah, she's 56. Yeah, that no, she no, has, she's not 56. She's 56. She's 56. Oh, okay, no, no. I was trying to do the math. Okay. I was like, six plus eight does not equal 15. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no. She probably turns 57 later this year. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, she's married to Nick Offerman. Has been since 2003. They are 14 years apart. Oh. And she is robbing the cradle on that one. <laughs> Nick Offerman's a mere 42 years old. Wow. Yeah. Belie uh, sorry, no, 45. Okay, so 11 years. Still, big difference and not yeah. in the conventional sense. Kind of cool, I think. Uh, she worked in a theater company in Chicago and then eventually moved to Los Angeles in 1985 to begin uh, appearing in supporting roles, films, and television productions. She made her Broadway debut in Greece in 1994 and has since appeared in several Broadway musicals. Of course, she's best known for her role as Karen Walker on Will and Grace from the late 90s until 2006. She has since appeared in numerous uh, guest appearances on shows like uh, Parks and Recreation, 30 Rock, uh, Boston Legal, and a GLAD award-winning <laughs> episode of The New Adventures of Old Christine. Yeah, when, um, back before her Will and Grace days, she had guest starred on a number of sitcoms like Seinfeld, Frasier, Wings, Mad About You, Caroline in the City, Just Shoot Me. Wow. Literally every NBC sitcom. <laughs> yep. 
And then she also played a major character on an episode of Murder, She Wrote, titled Coal Miner's Slaughter. (laughs) And she actually tested for Elaine Bennis on Seinfeld in 1989. So she was actually auditioned for that role. That would have been a different show. Yeah. Would have been a fun show. But, yeah. (laughs) Ooh, interesting. Okay. In 2005, she saw comedian and actor Bill Hader performing with his Second City class in Los Angeles. And then shortly after, brought him to the attention of Lorne Michaels from Saturday Night Live. Hence basically getting him onto Saturday Night Whoa. Live. Wow. Megan Mullally did that? Yep. Bill Hader's one of the best things that <laughs> happened to SNL in the last, like, ten years. Yes, he is. That's amazing. <laughs> I had no idea she had that kind of, like, power. <laughs> wow. That's kind of cool. Yeah, she essentially saved that show in a post-Will Ferrell era. I have missed a lot of opportunities to see her <laughs> in person, though. I mean, between the fact that she was in How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying in 1995's Revival, um, in 2007, she was in Young Frankenstein. Like, I was this hmm. close to going to the original Broadway <laughs> cast production of Young Frankenstein. This uh, close. Should have just done it. Just got to pull yeah. this trigger sometimes. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man, though. I'm sure she'll be back. She'll be in something good. Yeah. Seems like she keeps turning up and stuff. I mean, she's still been acting, and she's you know clearly had no need to since Will and Grace. But yeah, <laughs> uh, and she's married to Will, to Nick Offerman now. So I mean, mm. <laughs> <laughs> yep, she is actually a member of a band called Supreme Music Program. What? And they have released three albums to date: the Sweetheart Breakin', Big as a Berry, and Free Again. Oh, wow. Okay, so then, um, I guess after that, maybe, or in side project to that, her and Stephanie Hunt formed the band Nancy and Beth, and they went on tour in 2013 with Nick Offerman. Oh, okay. So she actually met Nick Offerman in 2000. Mm-hmm. While they were doing a play in Los Angeles. And then they married in 2003. And Nick Offerman actually guest starred on Will and Grace during the fourth season. Which I did not know. Probably without his trademark mustache. Probably. If you see any roles Nick Offerman was in before Parks and Recreation, you will not recognize him. Nope. You won't. Because he didn't have the hairstyle or the facial hair. Yep. And he's this guy. He always plays like weird people. Yeah. Like in an episode of 24, he plays like this crazy hick who is like hassling um, a Middle Eastern guy because like the city has been like, is like in a blackout or something. What? It's like, <laughs> he, I think it's season two okay. or something. Right. But yeah, it's like, um, Maybe it's season four. 
and it, no, it is season four. Yeah, the whole the whole city is on like. Um, oh, it's the Manhattan Blackout episode, isn't it? It's the, yeah, the one the one where it's like um, martial law. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So he plays like this crazy hit guy, and he has like you know plaid shirt and a hat, no mustache, and he's just like <laughs> he's in disguise, he's in plain sight, we can't yeah. see him. Well, here's a good thing. We're nearing uh, pretty close, close-ish to the. End. We've had a lot of a lot of dead air in this mm-hmm. in this episode, I think, so far. So we may not end there, <laughs> but but I do want to throw this out there. There is a link to the character of Ron Swanson <laughs> from this article. <laughs> and honestly, if we could take the Black Album <laughs> by Prince to Ron Swanson. Come on, man. Best yeah. episode title? One of the better ones. I think that's pretty good. Okay. All right. I think we should it. just go there and like just like hang out, man. Let's <laughs> just like mosey for a bit. Yeah. There's a lot to digest about Juan Swanson. Wow. This is a long article. Oh, my God. Holy. Oh. <laughs> this is the longest article that we've come across this episode. It legitimately is. Maybe Prince is longer, but. No. I don't even it's... know if that's true. <laughs> like they rival each other. And uh, one's a fictional character. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know. There's so. How is there this much about Ron Swanson? I couldn't tell you if I tried. Um, but Wikipedia will try and tell us. Okay, where to begin? Where to begin? Well, Ronald Ulysses, quote unquote, Ron Swanson is a fictional character portrayed by Nick Offerman from the situational comedy television series Parks and Recreation on NBC, created by Greg Daniels and Michael Schur. 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 Schur? And you might, well, you might not recognize Greg Daniels, but you might know that he also co-created King of the Hill. Wait, really? Yep. Oh, wow. And he also was involved in The Simpsons for a while. And he also uh, co-created The Office, the American version. Hmm. So this guy has had a hand in a lot of good comedic material over the years. All right. In the series, Ron is the director of the Parks and Recreation Department in the fictional town of Pawnee, Indiana, and the immediate supervisor of Leslie Nope, played by Amy Poehler, until Nope's election to the Pawnee City Council at the end of Season 4. Yeah, they are polar opposites, pretty much. Whereas Nope is sunny and outgoing and just loves to work and loves to be part of the governmental system and making a difference. Whereas Ron Swanson kind of does not like any of that stuff. He does not like to help the government. He he actually is essentially trying to take it down from the inside and he essentially tries to do as little with his job as possible 
And speaking of Megan Mullally, she actually appears on the show in a guest role as Ron's ex-wife, Tammy. And he hates and fears both of his ex-wives, who are both named Tammy. And she is one of the more, um, let's say, aggressive of the Tammies out there. And actually, the uh, Ron has been a very central character since the very pilot episode of Parks and Recreation. And uh, Nick Offerman actually did have input into the character's creation. And a lot of the aspects of his personality were inspired by the actor himself. The traits of the character fascinating me, though, were also partially inspired by a real-life libertarian elected <laughs> official in Burbank, California. So there's that for you. <laughs> Offerman's portrayal of Ron Swanson has received critical acclaim, uh, being one of the cat, one of the more breakout characters on TV in a sitcom. Uh, Many people have decided that he is the best comedic character on television since Cosmo Kramer of Seinfeld. <laughs> Ron's platonic relationship with Leslie has been compared to that of Mary Richards and Lou Grant in the Mary Tyler Moore show. High praise, high praise. <laughs> and Offerman received several award nominations for, his, for the role uh, and won the TCA Award for Individual Achievement in Comedy, tying with Ty Burrell of Modern Family. <laughs> I can't read the history without laughing. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. Uh, despite Ron being a very private person, including getting his birth date redacted from all public documents, his background does occasionally come up in the show. He was born in a small town to Tamara Swanson, referred to as Tammy Zero by Ron, <laughs> and an unknown father. He grew up on a farm in a small town and is shown to have enjoyed woodworking from an early age, building his first chair at age five. <laughs> Ron is opposed to child labor laws, stating he got his first job at a sheet metal factory at age nine and in two weeks was running the floor. <laughs> Ron says that at age 11, he was offered a higher paying job at the tannery and attempted to do both jobs while going to middle school before realizing <laughs> it would be better to only work at the sheet metal factory. Ron also claimed that at age 12, he went to prom and was working at a quarry. <laughs> Ron moved in with his first wife, Tammy One, who worked at the hospital he was born at and was his math and Sunday school teacher <laughs> when he was 15 and said, although scandalous, people were too afraid to say anything. <laughs> Ron said that at age 18, his father wanted him to work at the steel mill, but he chose to go to college instead. <laughs> Ron believes the park system should be privatized and run entirely by corporations for profit as exemplified by the business model of Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> he advocates for program cuts wherever possible and purposely tries to hire people who are bad at their <laughs> jobs so they will slow down the government. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Ron Lobos puts no effort forth in his own job 
and lets his deputy director, Leslie Nope, do the vast majority of the work. <laughs> so, apparently, um, NBC actually resisted to giving Nick Offerman the part. What? Says it took five months for him from the time... Mike Schur and Greg Daniels said they wanted him to play the part, and NBC insisted on auditioning every other guy in the country, and then they finally acquiesced. Oh, that's right. I did. I did. I did audition for, for the role <laughs> of uh, for the role of Ron Swanson. I had a way better better mustache in college. Is what it came mm. down to. It was fresh then. It was one of those yeah. young guy mustaches, you know. Yeah. I couldn't grow a mustache so I wasn't in the running ah okay so everybody except for you yeah. they literally auditioned <laughs> everybody else though <laughs> so that real life libertarian that you mentioned earlier who was the co-inspiration for the character um, when they encountered him while researching for the show the guy um doesn't actually say his name. Um, he favored as little government interference as possible and admitted, I don't really believe in the mission of my job. I'm aware of the irony. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a Ron Swanson quote. Yeah. That's a bona fide. <laughs> he really is the inspiration for the character. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, basically his Ron's politics are from this guy, this libertarian. And his love of woodworking and scotch and food is all from Nick Offerman. Offerman says that the deadpan style of humor he uses for Juan Swanson was cultivated during his youth. When he was an altar boy, he would read things with the utmost sincerity, and his cousin would be cracking up because he knew he was full of shit. Offerman's real-life training in stage combat and kabuki dance <laughs> were the partial inspiration for the self-defense classes Ron offered his Parks Department colleagues in Park Safety. So it was actually Michael Schur's idea to cast Megan Mullally as Tammy 2. Um, and then when they pitched that idea to Offerman, he was extremely responsive. It only makes sense. It all was a good. It was a good combo from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Really, it's just the way it should be. <laughs> Based on a line from the stakeout, when Ron says, "I was born ready," I'm Ron Ing Swanson. He is often referenced by fans and even reviewers <laughs> as Ron Ing Swanson. <laughs> Fans created websites based on him, like cats that look like Ron Swanson. <laughs> and after Ron misunderstood a turkey burger to be a fried turkey leg inside a grilled hamburger, the cooking website Eater.com created and posted a recipe for that exact food. <laughs> I want to eat that. Same. Same. Baby. <laughs> Oh, that would be delicious. 
an image of a fake flavor of Ron Swanson-themed Ben and Jerry's ice cream called All of the Bacon and Eggs You Have (laughs) was designed and circulated on the internet. The Ben and Jerry's Corporation responded positively to the image and said in a statement, Ron's beliefs are in accordance with those of Ben and Jerry's, where two scoops of government can help the less fortunate and truly be a servant to the community and its citizens. (laughs) And despite his critical success, he never won an Emmy. He never even received a nomination for his role as Ron Swanson. That's why you never back awards shows. (laughs) Yep. They are no good for you. Many people were very, very uh, disappointed, including his own competition, (laughs) Ty Burrell, who later received a nomination in and eventually won the category Offerman was competing in, stated that they believed Offerman should have been nominated. (laughs) Well, I think... I mean, we could go into every single detail... But I think we should allow the listeners, if they haven't seen Parks and Recreation, to enjoy and delve into that all by themselves. And if the listeners are Parks and Recreation fans, take this moment to relive some of the fun and joy (laughs) that you experienced during your time watching Parks and Recreation. Maybe you remember some funny jokes, one-liners, that you forgot about Ron Swanson. (laughs) And uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks for listening, guys. It's been great. <laughs> see, see you. See you next week. <laughs> yep. From the Black Album, Prince Album, to Ron Swanson. So go and visit visit Facebook.com/slash/TWCPodcast. Give us a like and follow. And then head over to iTunes and rate and review us. And you can always check out twc.erictoribio.com for new episodes. And I'd like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song. And Broadway Nightlights for our outro song. So thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. And I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles. Nice. Pretty happy that we got that title. We got that title locked in. That's that's some clickbait right there. Yeah. <laughs> Podcast <laughs> listeners hate this one simple trick, including Ron Swanson's name in the title of your link. Podcast listeners hate him. One simple trick that gets more listeners per podcast. Just direct all Wikipedia articles towards Ron I think that's pretty good. I mean, like, it's yeah. still in the realm of media, but I'm pretty happy with the transition there. I wonder how many, like, fictional characters we can get away with doing Wikipedia articles on before people, like, start to complain. That we don't do facts anymore. <laughs> it's not a cop out, honest. We're trying to do things that are funny or interesting. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. funny and interesting doesn't always in- encapsulate things that aren't Ron Swanson. Sometimes to get what you really need out of life, you gotta just indulge. You just gotta go big. You just gotta go.
for all of the bacon and eggs that you have. <laughs> yeah, we're just trying to educate people. People don't know about Ron Swanson, they should. That's all they're trying to do. Spreading the Ron Swanson. Thank you. 